0: I could and your mercy endures forever What you I could and your mercy endures forever
1: everyone. Thank you you all for joining me once again as we continue into part eight of our study through John's Gospel. I hope that you have all been staying safe and healthy and have been able to find ways to stay joyful. Before we go any further, though, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be your children. To know that you are holding us close is a gift beyond measure. Let your Holy Spirit surround us as we seek to know you more through the study of your word. Quiet our thoughts and and open our minds to to all that you would have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned at the very beginning of our study, uh, John's gospel is unique. In contrast to the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which cover many of the same miracles and parables and other events in Jesus' life and ministry, and quite often with identical passages, John stands apart. Generally speaking, while the three synoptics emphasize what Jesus said and did, John's emphasis is on who Jesus is. Instead of focusing on the signs and the sayings of Christ, John focuses on the identity of Christ. Because of the emphasis and the insight into the divine nature of Christ, uh, Clement of Alexandria, who was one of the early church fathers, he called John the spiritual gospel. One of the features that demonstrates John's priority of identity over action is found in his treatment of the miracles that Jesus performed. For example, in contrast to the Gospel of Mark, which details about 20 miracles and references around another 10 more, John only mentions, only mentions seven, six of which are found nowhere else in scripture, collectively referred to as the seven signs, These miracles reveal the divine authority of Jesus Christ and serve to support the gospel writer's purpose, as he so clearly stated in John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And just a quick note here on that magic number seven. There are actually eight miracles recorded in John's Gospel if we include the Resurrection. But the the Resurrection, despite being the most miraculous event ever, had an entirely different purpose. Whereas the ordinary uh, miracles—that sounds like a contradiction, I know— whereas the ordinary miracles were performed to demonstrate that Jesus was who he said he was, the Resurrection provided the proof that we do not have to live and die with the consequences of our sin, that we can have eternal life because Christ is alive and has conquered death. Seven is a very significant number in the Bible. The frequent recurrence in Hebrew literature and the importance of the objects to which it was associated, it it makes a strong case for for seven being a, a sacred number. It has been called the symbol of perfection. And because God rested on the seventh day following creation, it has also been termed the symbol of rest. I mean, just think of the, the times that seven is mentioned in the Bible. The Jacob's seven years of service to Laban. Pharaoh's seven fat oxen and the seven lean ones. The seven branches of the golden candlestick. The seven trumpets of the, the seven priests who sounded them. The seven days of the siege of Jericho, the seven churches, the seven spirits, the seven stars, seven seals, seven vials, and many others. They prove the importance of of this sacred number, and they make it clear, at least to me anyway, that John was entirely intentional with the number of these ordinary miracles that he selected to highlight in his gospel. Well, that being said, it, It shouldn't be a surprise then that on the last day of the first week of Jesus' public ministry, day seven, we are treated to an account of Jesus' first miracle. And our text today is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And after this, he he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. As I mentioned earlier, the the events of our passage occurred on the last of seven days. So so the phrase, on the third day, that should be taken to mean on the third day, counting inclusively, from the calling of Philip and Nathanael, which, if you remember, happened on day five. Day six was undoubtedly a travel day, and John doesn't mention that anything of note took place uh, before the group arrived in Cana. Now Cana of Galilee is probably identified with the modern location Kirbet Cana, an uninhabited ruin that that lies about nine miles north of Nazareth, a distance that could have easily been covered in the allotted time after the, the group left the vicinity of the Jordan River. Now, weddings weddings were a major social event in first century Palestine. They were the culmination of the betrothal period, which often lasted for several months, and during which the bride and the groom, they didn't live together. Uh, they were considered legally married, but they, they did not live together. On the night of the ceremony, the, the groom, along with several of his friends, would go to the bride's house and escort her and her attendants to the groom's house uh, where the ceremony and the banquet would be held. After a lavish celebration, which could last for as long as a week, the festivities would would come to an end and the actual wedding ceremony would be performed. The length of the celebration and the fact that, unlike today, the groom was responsible for paying for the feast, these are just a, a couple of details to to keep in mind as we proceed into the story. Well, aside from the location and the occasion, the other important detail that we learn from verse 1 is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is at the wedding. Her presence uh, along with the fact that that Jesus was also invited, that hints at the possibility that this was a family wedding. Perhaps a a cousin or or as some have suggested Maybe even a sister of Jesus. Verse 2 makes it clear that the disciples were invited right along with Jesus. And that would have been perfectly in line with the custom at the time. When one extended an invitation to a rabbi or any important person, it was understood that, that he would be accompanied by at least a plus one. In this case, a plus four. Although we can speculate about it being a family event, the wedding, at the very least, uh, involved close friends because Mary seems to be more than just a guest. It seems that she apparently has some responsibility for helping out with the festivities. Now, I say this because it is she who discovers a, a potential party disaster and takes the initiative to solve the problem. In in verse 3, we read that as soon as Mary discovers that the wine has run out, she immediately goes to find her son and and tell him the bad news. Now, make no mistake about it. Uh, This is a major problem, folks. Running out of wine on the first day of what potentially would be a week-long party, that's not good. Why did Mary go to her son and, and tell him about the wine situation? Well, at this point in the story, I think it's a fair question to ask. As as I studied for this message, I I was reminded of the the Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? Now, I'm sure that most of you are, are familiar with it, but if you aren't, the song poses the question of how much of Jesus' mission was revealed to his mother before it actually happened. Well, when I applied that question to this particular situation, I determined that, yes, Mary knew something. Now, whether or not she knew exactly what Jesus would do, that that's still a mystery, but I am convinced that, that at the very least, she was prompted by the Holy Spirit to seek her son's help. Now, as an alternative explanation, uh, perhaps it was because of she was there at the miraculous circumstances of his birth. She's heard the, the declaration of angels. She watched him live a sinless life and, and display incredible wisdom. And to top all that off, she has John the Baptist's confirmation. Because of that, she, she may have been encouraging Jesus to publicly reveal what she already knew, that he was the Messiah. Now, even though we, we can't be sure exactly you know, what prompted Mary to in, inform Jesus about the status of the wine, I think it, it's safe to assume that she probably wasn't expecting his very abrupt and somewhat startling reply. In, in verse 4, uh, we read that Jesus says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So let's stop here and take a closer look at how Jesus responded to his mother's simple statement. First of all, by addressing her as woman, Jesus creates a distance from his mother. Now, although it's completely polite, the term woman, much like our modern term ma'am, That was not an intimate form of address and it signals a change. It signals a change in in their relationship. Jesus had been anointed as the Messiah and if Mary needed his help now, it would not be obtained through the familiar mother-son relationship. His earthly relationships would no longer determine his actions. Furthermore, Jesus was acutely aware that he was not operating on his own timetable. The phrase, my time has not yet come, is unique to John's gospel and reveals the obedient heart of our Savior. Although he had been a mature man for many years, he had acted according to a schedule that had been laid down by God before the foundations of the world. This was not the time for his full messianic glory to be revealed. Yet the miracle that he would perform would, would demonstrate his divine power and serve as a preview of sorts of that glory that was to come. Well, realizing that Jesus hadn't actually told her no, Mary is undeterred, and in verse 5, she tells the servants to do whatever he tells them to do. Now I'm going to stop right here, just for a moment, because I don't want to gloss over such a valuable piece of advice. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Even if you don't know exactly what's going to happen, trust and obey. Okay, well, back to our story. Because the word translated here as servant is, is the Greek word diakonos, where that's where we get our word deacon from. and And not doulois, which means slave, we can assume that the, the people that Mary was addressing were guests at the party who were, who were helping out with the celebration, and, and Mary was letting them know that it was okay to follow any instructions that Jesus might give to them. Although she didn't know exactly what he would do, Mary knew that it would be the right thing. Well, in verse 6, John offers some details for the benefit of his Gentile readers. The large stone pots, he explains, were were there for the Jewish practice of ritual purification, which was an integral part of first century Judaism. Listen to this from Mark 7, verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. John then makes the point to, to indicate that the stone, jars, the stone jars were much larger than the ones that are typically used to carry water from a well. Basing dimensions on the 20 to 30-gallon capacity that John describes we'd be looking at a vessel that stood between 26 and 32 inches high and anywhere from 16 to 22 inches in diameter. Big jars. (laughs) Well, sometime between the interaction with his mother back in verse 3 and what we're about to read here in verse 7, Jesus receives a mission update. Most likely in the form of a prompting from the Holy Spirit. A prompting that releases him from the secret that he had been withholding about who he really was. Now I say this because in contrast to what he had told his mother earlier, Jesus now takes action. He tells the servants to to fill the jars with water and they obediently follow his instructions. They fill all six of these great big old jars right up to the brim. And then, without any fanfare, you know, no abracadabra magic words or waving of a wand, the miracle happens. And Jesus knows it. In verse 8, he instructs the servants to draw some out, draw some water out, and, and take it to the master of the feast. Of the master of the feast uh, was probably a family member or a close friend of the groom who had been given the honor of presiding over the festivities. Now, notice that, that Jesus didn't direct the servants to any one jar in particular. He knew, without a doubt, that the contents of every jar had been transformed into wine. But as we will soon discover, not just any wine. Well, the servants bring some of the wine to the, the master of the feast to taste. And, and here John is very careful to point out that the master didn't know where the wine had come from. And, and after tasting it, he's absolutely blown away. He is so impressed with the with the quality that he makes a special point to go to the bridegroom, who, if you remember, was ostensibly paying for this party. He goes to the bridegroom and he says to him in verse 10, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, evidently this master of the feast had been present on several other occasions where the quality of wine had diminished over time as the feast had progressed. And he was, he was genuinely surprised and delighted at the generosity of the person he believed had been responsible. Now, I'll come right out and tell you, I'm not a wine guy. So I enlisted the help of the Bon Appetit magazine to to do a little research. And I discovered that an 1811 bottle of Chateau de Kim was at the top of their best wine list. And it, it had a perfect score of 100 out of 100. Now, just a little side note here. A bottle of this wine sold in 2011 at auction for... $117,000, breaking the previous white wine record of $110,000. Well, my point to all of this is that that even at $117,000 a bottle, the wine from that feast would have blown it away. There is no doubt that the wine at the feast was the freshest, sweetest wine that anyone had ever tasted. A wine that that didn't come about through the ordinary process of of vine and grape and earth and sun. This was a new wine, brought into existence from nothing, as proof that Jesus was indeed the creator, the creator that the gospel writer referred to in John 1.3 when he wrote, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. As we read in verse 11, this was only the first of many miracles that Jesus would perform. Miracles that would serve to confirm his identity and manifest the glory of God. However, there there is a somewhat surprising detail that, that we shouldn't overlook. And that's that although John mentions that the disciples believed in him, And as well they should. I mean, they had heard John the Baptist's testimony and Jesus' own words, and now they had witnessed a miracle. I mean, there's no mention, though, of any of the servants being moved to a response. Despite having performed a miracle, the likes of which had not been seen since the days of Elijah and Elisha, when God created the oil and the flour. Despite that, the servants totally miss what the sign was pointing to. It's a, it's a tragic truth that, that Satan will blind the eyes of the non-believers to, to such a degree that they will be unable to see Jesus, even when he's right there in front of him. Well, our passage closes in, in verse 12 with, with Jesus and his mother and brothers. And, and the word brothers here is, is used in the familial sense. We can say Jesus and his brothers and sisters. So, Jesus and his family, along with the four disciples, they, they head down to Capernaum. And, and John uses that, that term heading down because Cana is located in the hill country. And Capernaum is located on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So the travelers are literally moving downwards. Okay. According to the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Capernaum would would serve as Jesus' headquarters and and his family's home for the better part of his Galilean ministry. Therefore, the the phrase uh, they stayed there for a few days, this is probably referring to the fact that, that after a few days, Jesus and the disciples went up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. As we will discover in the next message, uh, next Sunday, it would turn out to be a Passover that a lot of people would not soon forget. So how's that for a little teaser for the message next week? Well, when preparing for this uh, message today, I had occasion, as I most often do, to read a, a wealth of material. I, I just read a lot about this subject and and this miracle in particular. And I found that interpretations of this event ran the gamut from the ridiculous to the sublime and and all shades in between. I read about the significance of the number of vessels, uh, six being a human number, that is, one number shy of seven, the perfect number. I read about the material used in the jars, the stone versus the earthenware. The comparison of the water and the wine, uh, comparing that as an analogy to the difference between the works of the Pharisees and the works of Christ. A lot of it made sense, and a lot of it was extremely speculative, but all of it, I realized, uh, was getting in the way of what the gospel writer intended when he wrote what he wrote. John's intention, as we should all know by now, was to make us believe that Jesus was who he said he was, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. The miracle that Jesus performed, just like John told us, manifested his glory. It showed us that he had divine authority, the power to do miracles, and as a result of that manifestation, his disciples believed in him, and so should we. That was the purpose of the miracle. And with all apologies to those who would seek to impress a deeper symbolism upon this event, it is the only purpose that that we can state for certain. A purpose that fits in perfectly with John's overarching purpose that we talked about earlier. That being, so that we may believe. Is it true That the things that God gives us are infinitely superior to anything that man can create? Absolutely. Will God help us in times of need and and even help our friends if we ask him to? Of course. And should we always try to help our mom out when she asks us to? Probably. All of these points that, that can be drawn from the subtext of the passage are true. But we must not allow them to to shift our focus from what John intended as the central truth of the story. And that is that Jesus is exactly who he said that he was. The one and only Son of God that had divine authority over everything. Everything. As we continue through our study, we will encounter... Six more miracles in John's gospel. Six more signs that John includes as evidence of Jesus' identity and divine authority. We will witness his power over the frailties of the human body, his power over the physical laws of the natural world, and his power over even death itself. As believers, our joy will will be in the confirmation and the celebration of what we already know to be the truth. There is nothing sweeter than being reminded of how wonderful our Savior is. Amen? Amen. If you are hearing this message today and you have yet to believe in him, I want you to know this. Jesus is calling you to himself right now. He is the one who is not content with 99 out of 100 and he is waiting to welcome you into the fold. Listen to his voice and do what he's telling you to do. If you have heard and believe that Jesus is who he said that he was and that he will do what he said that he would do, then there's no reason to wait. You can begin a new life in Christ right now at this very moment by repeating this prayer with me. Would you pray with me? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as Lord. From this day forward, guide my life and help me to do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, let us know, please. We would be absolutely delighted to assist you with the next step as you begin a new life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the difference that you have made in our lives we are so grateful that we no longer have to face the trials of this world by ourselves please keep us safe in your merciful arms and protect us from the temptations of this world let your holy spirit fill us with the joy of knowing you and allow us opportunities to minister to our broken world in your name we pray amen Well, thank you for joining me today. As always, I I pray that the Lord continue to bless you and to keep you and to be gracious unto each and every one of you. I pray that he turns his face and lets it shine upon you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Have a wonderful week, listen to his voice, do what he tells you, look for opportunities to share the good news. I love you all. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay joyful. See you next Sunday. Bye.
0: Jesus got together with his disciples one more time on the night before he was about to be arrested. Knowing what was about to ensue, He wanted to share something very special with his disciples. Jesus always did something on purpose, for a purpose. When he introduced these elements to them, what we now know as the Lord's Supper, he didn't put it in such a way as, well, you know, I hope you guys keep this thing going while I'm gone. No, he said, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. So this morning, as followers of the Lord Jesus, we take communion because we are going to remember what he did for us. We hold in our hands this morning, the two elements that the Lord Jesus himself introduced as representing him. We have bread, which he said, this is my body. He broke bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. So let's take this together. This is the juice that represents his blood. This is what makes sin able to be forgiven. It has everything to do with Jesus' shed blood. And we're grateful that he did this, and he took this, and he passed to his disciples, and he said, take and drink, all of you. So let's take this together. Father, we are so grateful of what the Lord Jesus did, and we want to be faithful in remembering what he did. We enjoy taking the Lord's communion every Sunday here in our church body, and we take it together with each other, and we take it with you. Thank you for the grace that you gave us that enabled us to be forgiven to today to be your disciples. We just thank you for all things in Jesus' name, amen.